Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about Central America. In particular, we're going to talk about Nicaragua, El Salvador and Honduras. President Biden is ratcheting up pressure on Nicaragua, signing new legislation that includes sanctions on the government of President Daniel Ortega. The sanctions come in response to the re-election of President Ortega in what the U.S. calls an undemocratic, fraudulent election. In El Salvador, at least some people are worried, angry and showing it on the streets. Last week, a long-term ban on the presidential second term was lifted by the country's top court and Congress moved to force a third of the country's judges to retire. It's all a power grab by the country's president, said judges on the march. Now, Honduras is on course to have its first female president. It will be the first time in 12 years that the right-wing national party has not held power. Five weeks ago, Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega won a fourth term in office in a vote that Western and most other Latin American leaders declared badly rigged. Ortega, in power now for more than 15 consecutive years, has taken an increasingly repressive turn, locking up dozens of his opponents and shutting down over 60 civil society organizations. His Salvadorian counterpart, Naib Bukele, El Salvador's first millennial social media savvy leader, recently dismissed Supreme Court justices and appointed replacements that will let him seek a second term in office in 2024, though he hasn't openly confirmed he'll run. In Honduras, there's also some good news. Opposition candidate Xiomara Castro won a recent vote that many anticipated would provoke a crisis especially as U.S. prosecutors accuse her predecessor, President Juan Orlando Hernandez, of involvement in drug trafficking. Charges Hernandez denies. In April alone, a record 178,000 migrants were stopped at the southern U.S. border, trying to enter the U.S. Of those, nearly half, or more than 80,000, came from just three Central American countries, El Salvador, Honduras, or Guatemala. 
Since an explosion of so-called migrant caravans in 2018, more than three million migrants have been apprehended at the US's southern border. More than half of them were Central Americans, and until recently most of the others were Mexicans. They're fleeing violence, predation by gangs and food insecurity, now sometimes caused by crop failure related to climate change. Former US President Donald Trump took a tough line on migration, famously threatening to build a wall along the border and taking children away from migrant families. Many youngsters are still separated years later. Current US President Joe Biden has taken a pretty hard stance too, but he's curbed some of the excesses. His government also says it wants to reduce migration by addressing its root causes, the reasons people leave their homes in the first place. But is it possible for foreign powers to tackle deep-seated societal problems, corruption, inequality, violence? And if so, how should they do that? To talk about this, we're happy to welcome on Tiziano Breda, Crisis Group Central America expert, and to welcome back Ivan Briscoe, our Latin America director. Tiziano, Ivan, welcome on. Thanks a lot, Richard. It's a pleasure to join you today. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Naz. So why don't we start, uh, Tiziano, could you talk a little bit about what's been happening in Nicaragua and this veer towards dictatorship that uh, Daniel Ortega has taken? Well, the watershed in in Nicaragua's recent history was definitely um, what happened in 2018, when a surprising and unexpected wave of mass protests shook the country um, and really made Ortega feel that the concentration of power, his ruling uh, that he had been building for so many years was facing some threats. And the crackdown that, uh, that subdued uh, eventually, this protest, which killed actually more than 300 people in 2018, contributed to deepen the crisis that the country is still experiencing. The waves of uh, detentions uh, during this electoral year is only explained by um, Ortega's fear, actually, to um, lose power in an election, because this, uh, in light of what happened in 2018, would represent basically possibly the end of his political project and even could, impl- could imply some uh, judicial persecution uh, for some of these brutal acts that were committed by the security forces and which some international human rights bodies um, considered as possibly crimes against humanity. And so uh, Ortega, as we, as we heard up top, as you talked about, I mean, he's locked up a lot of his opponents. Many others have left the country. He's dismantled civil society organizations. But would he lose a, a genuine election? I mean, is his, is his popularity plummeting to that degree? Well, he's uh, managed to maintain uh, the support of uh, a good portion of the society, around 20 to 30 percent of, of interviewees of any survey uh, being conducted over the past few years, has always maintained loyal or uh, sympathetic to the president. But of course, there's a greater portion of the population that um, has uh, growingly uh, felt unease with Ortega. And despite the fact that the opposition was not able to create a unified front in recent years, the, in, instead being torn by infightings, uh, ideological and personal rivalries, um, etc., um, I think Ortega wanted to zero uh, out any possibility that uh, the opposition could manage uh, to find a unified position and could eventually uh, possibly defeat him in, in a free and fair election. And Tiziano, what do you see as the current risk for this turning to violence in the streets? 
Well, in the short term, it's difficult to see an abrupt eruption of, again, mass protests for two main reasons. First of all, because Ortega has been able to strengthen the intelligence network of the Sandinista to the very local level to implement a sort of a, to impose a de facto police state throughout the country, um, which is turning uh, against anyone who speaks out against the government. Uh, on the other hand, uh, precisely this inability of uh, the groups that emerged that arose from the 2018 protests to actually represent the popular sentiment and to uh, form a cohesive front that created this sentiment of like disenchantment, distrust, uh, and is now translating into rather abstention to comment on anything or even to basically leave the country. And we're seeing that in an increased number of Nicaraguans leaving the country this year. This polarization, this you know consistent and, and, and uh, crackdown uh, on any dissident voice um, is steaming tensions. And eventually, at some point, particularly if Ortega is not able to ensure uh, the oiling of the machinery of the state and, and the, the public sector support, we could see these tensions arise once again. And so, Ivan, if you'd like to come in, a few years ago, Ortega's relations with the US were, were, were kind of okay, if I, if I remember right, but they've taken a nosedive over, over the past few years. The US has imposed sanctions, but Ortega's relations with much of the region have also sort of deteriorated, right? I mean, since since the election, other Latin American leaders have taken a pretty hard line, and he seems to have sort of sought better relations with Russia and China. Do you, do you want to say a little bit about his evolving foreign relations? Where does Ortega come from? I think this is the, the, the essential element. Ortega was a guerrilla revolutionary, took, uh, took power in, uh, as part of the Sandinista revolution in 1979 and eventually led the government in the civil war of the 1980s against opponents backed by the United States, the Contras. His uh, hatred, uh, I think we can use that word in this context, for the United States uh, is a constant thread through his political career. Now, it was dimmed somewhat after he came back to power in 2007, he took a more pragmatic attitude. It was a new Daniel Ortega. He presented himself as a more reasonable, moderate character. He allied with the business sector. He made a pact with the church. He got on okay with the United States. And the United States saw, well, here's a peaceful country. Its economy is growing. They cooperate on counter-narcotics and their people don't migrate to the US border fundamentally unlike countries to the north. So the relationship was was all right, but it was interesting. In that in that traumatic period in 2018, when really the, the Nicaraguan people spontaneously rose up against the government, which they thought had concentrated power and was acting out of its own needs and interests and not the, the general people, that, that that spontaneous rebellion was immediately understood by Ortega and his wife and vice president. Rosario Murillo as deriving from a conspiracy hatched in the United States. Um, I don't think that was true. Unfortunately, the US government at the time did portray it as such a few months later when they started speaking of the Troika of Tyranny, the governments in Nicaragua and Cuba and Venezuela. But uh, at that time it wasn't. But Ortega is happy 
in the anti-imperialist mode and everything which is thrown at him, and this is one of the problems with the response, both in the United States and other Latin American countries, everything thrown at him is interpreted by him as just another conspiracy to overthrow a sovereign government in Latin America, which he has to defend with all his might. And this, unfortunately, is the dilemma which uh, I think other countries are finding themselves in now. And if I may just... uh jump in on that i absolutely agree with ivan but um i also think that as long as ortega on the uh, on the other hand is able to uh, maintain the support or to seek the support of even if it a reduced uh, group of of countries but being the those uh, ideologically aligned such as you know venezuela cuba bolivia or being the, the those interested in of course um having a sort of a foothold in a region that is very sensitive to the us and being engaged in a sort of a diplomatic um, battle with the US, which are Russia and China, he may perceive that this strategy um, is eventually going to succeed to maintain him in power with the sort of a minimal lifeline, also political support and maybe economic support from these countries. Daniel Ortega just a few days ago severed a long-standing diplomatic relationship with Taiwan and moved to China. And it's clear that this is part and parcel of his response to all the pressure he's receiving at the moment. So let's move on to uh, El Salvador. Uh, Tell us a bit about Bukele. Seems like quite a character. Uh, opinions are divided on on Nayib Bukele. He's not to everybody's liking. He's what? He's he's nearly forty, around forty now. He came to power in his late thirties. You know, he'd been a bit of an entrepreneur, uh, you know, a motorbike salesman. I think at some stage he was mayor of San Salvador. He's someone who who came over in El Salvadorian politics uh, as as you know a breath of fresh air, a, a character, an iconoclast outside this two-party system which had run the country from the early 1990s, from the end of the Civil War. But what he's become is a little bit different. You know, this character who wears his baseball cap backwards and, you know, embraces Bitcoin and Silicon Valley, also uh, throws out judges who are not to his liking and seemingly uh, would like to run the country for a very long time. Uh, and presumably uh, will stand for re-election in 2024 uh, now that some of the con- restrictions on that have been have been removed. In other words, what we seem to be seeing is that this young, hip, social media savvy, uh, you know, IT nerd, if you like, is someone who is gradually morphing into your traditional Central American caudillo who would like to rule his country forever. That's certainly what the United States thinks of Bukele at the moment, because their relations with El Salvador have plummeted. uh, Absolutely. We heard up top that his pandemic response was actually quite effective. And he's had some success in reducing levels of violence, which were astronomical in in Salvador before he took on. So sort of what explains that he's a, he's a good administrator or, or or he's had some other some other things that he's done well i think bukele has got something to offer in el salvador as in other countries in central america what you tend to see is is governments ruling in a sort of corporate style making sure all the different interest groups in their extremely unequal societies are are satisfied and and very rarely changing anything but bukele is uh, fundamentally he offers 
action. When he went to the, the Legislative Assembly, the Parliament of El Salvador, demanding that they, they approve money for his security plan last year, he gave an interview afterwards. He said, enough of, of the dialogue, enough of these discussions which go on forever. I'm taking decisions. I'm making steps. Now, if you look at what the El Salvadorians think, and he is, Bukele remains very popular, so well over 60% popularity. When you ask El Salvadorians, as they do in these, you know, these mega surveys across Latin America, do, uh, do they think that their democracy is working? El Salvadorians are very satisfied with their democracy. They think it's working because they've elected someone who gets the job done. He, he, he maintains a degree of economic growth. He brings in new investments. And first and foremost, he brings down crime, violent crime, gang-related crime. The question is how? And as we in Crisis Group sort of carried out an investigation on the subject last year and others media outlets have confirmed since then and the United States now maintains as well that reduction was achieved through secretive negotiations with gang leaders based in El Salvadorian jails it's an example of him taking measures a little bit outside the norm to try and achieve what society wants we should talk about these negotiations in a moment. This popularity, I mean, it's worth saying that that's pretty extraordinary for the region, a region in which polls consistently show sort of widespread anger at elites. So the fact that 60% give him approval ratings, large numbers of Salvadorians agree with or are content with their government is really quite unusual for Latin America, especially for Central America, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's it, it moves around. I mean, in El Salvador, what you saw was very high support for democracy in the early 1990s, when the civil war had ended, extremely high levels of support for democracy gradually went down over the years until El Salvador, at the time Bukele was elected, had one of the lowest rates of satisfaction with democracy in Latin America. I mean, this reflects a point which the, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, made when he did a trip to Latin America just a few months ago. He said, Democracy, the balance of powers, uh, representation in, in parliament, uh, all that's very, very important indeed. But if people don't feel that democracy is actually generating you know, economic inclusion or, or security, then they will start to doubt the system. And that's exactly what had happened in El Salvador. And it's what has happened in Honduras as well. But uh, in Honduras, we've also seen the election by a landslide of a, a, well, not so much a new face, but a different face from the one which has been ruling the country for the last few years. And that might breathe some fresh air into this system. Uh, but the problem we have in Central America is that these you know, waves of trust between society and governments, they don't last for long. Unfortunately, governments tend to revert to to, you know, the old patterns of behaving and their rulers tend to, you know, become more interested in power than in representing the people. So let's talk in a moment about some of these sort of region-wide trends. But but Tiziano, I actually wanted to ask you a little bit more about these, you know, these talks between officials in the Bukele government and gang leaders. You know, we did some work on this last year. The truce seems to have been confirmed. And it seems to have had this pretty dramatic impact on levels of violence in the country, which has, I, I assume, got to be good for Salvadorans in general. So do you want to say a little bit about that and what happened and, and how do Salvadorans view those talks? Well, there's a big difference between what Salvadorans as a population perceive about these talks and the understanding from the political class, for example, um, that 
uh, dealing, actively engaging with gangs um, is basically the only way uh, in the short term to reduce the number of homicides, at least since a similar process um, was carried out by the left-wing FMLN government of uh, Mauricio Funes in 2012, uh, when they struck for the first time a, a deal um, and basically uh, reduced as well uh, enormously the, num the numbers of homicide. At the same time, managed to um, reduce the inter-gang violence, but at the same time, of course, uh, created or nurtured this sort of uh, understanding by gangs that they have themselves a political capital. Their ability to alter the levels of homicide uh, composes the, the, their leverage in dealing with the government. Um, and that's actually been consolidated throughout the years then. Um, there were other kind of negotiation in 2014. And that explains why this, this government has come to the conclusion that, you know, dealing with gangs is possibly the only way in the short term to ensure that the homicides go down. Now, uh, is this something positive or bad? On one hand, of course, you save a lot of lives in the short term. Um, it, the, the perception of security has also improved over the past few years. Uh, of course, you, you improve the uh, perception of the, the possibility of foreign investment. Uh, but on the other hand, you consolidate uh, gangs, basically uh, criminal structures, and you forcibly increase the, the negotiating power towards the state. This is all very unpopular to the public because of uh, the way in which the first talks in, a decade ago were handled, uh, which uh, eventually fall apart uh, and uh, prompted a wave of violence between the state and, and gangs. And they entailed some incentives, some benefits to the gangs uh, in particularly in their leadership in prisons, which were not well, well seen by the people in the communities who were already suffering from gang violence, who were being extorted, um, and so did not perceive that uh, such a deal could, could be done. And that's the main reason why Bukele has probably kept this conversation as secret as possible. Um, and we actually don't know what terms are being discussed. There, there had been reports after we published our uh, analysis that proved that there were actually meetings in, in, in jails uh, with hooded people, uh, among whom there were government officials and the gang leadership in jails. But the actual, you know, quid pro quo, the actual uh, bargain is still unknown. Um, and, and there's an issue there of either disclosing it with a political cause that that might, imp might imply for Bukele, or to distance the, uh, the government from this process which may prompt a gang reaction uh, as they can could, could feel that they are being um, betrayed again, that the government is not uh, abiding by what it has complied, and that could prompt another wave of violence between states and gangs. And so, Titiana, I mean, Salvadorans, they presumably, though, they see this decline in violence, um, and yet that has come at a cost, as you say, of, of potentially sort of empowering and entrenching gangs but I mean is that is that also visible so I mean if you're on the streets of, of, of San Salvador how has the decline in violence shaped the, the interaction that people on the streets have with gangs well there's actually precisely the thing the people living in gang control neighborhood uh, do not feel so much of a difference in terms of the gang presence themselves or the gang actions in terms of 
carrying out extortion or resolving disputes between neighbors or uh, forcibly recruiting uh, the youngsters of those communities. Um, the difference is they just they, they put fewer deaths on the streets, but the levels of the incredibly high levels of violence of 2015, for example, 2016, they were mainly uh, the result of this uh, clash between gangs and security forces. So a key part of what's going on at the moment, as police officers, commissioners also told us, there is also an internal effort within the security forces to try and diminish the use of force when dealing with gangs. On the other hand, the gang's presence, the gang's activities are still going on. And that's actually one of the main problems. If you only deal with the number of homicides, it's definitely a great improvement. But... It's a short-term policy and there are some crucial issues that underlie the gang problem in the country and that needs to be addressed. Can I just jump in there? Because, I mean, I think it's a really important point, I think, for, for El Salvador in general. A peace or a reduction in violence, which is hatched out of a deal carried out in secret between government officials who deny what they're doing and and gang leaders in prison who probably also deny to their own gangs what they're doing or maybe communicate it in a different way is fragile. It could break. There's no one to guarantee it. There's no one to implement it. There is no judge who will oversee it. So if that were to be the basis for a open, transparent negotiating process. If you have six months, a year of secret negotiations, and then move it up to a to a to an open process in which there's a clear agenda, in which you can have representatives of the gangs and the government talking in a negotiation setting, then I think that would be something we would have to applaud. We would defend that. That is a way forward. Unfortunately, the recent US moves to uh, sanction two people involved in these secret negotiations. This took place only a few days ago. And uh, in all likelihood to criminally charge them because the Department of Justice is looking into charges against them for negotiating with criminal actors on the US Department of Treasury's list of international transnational criminal organizations is not a productive step. It doesn't encourage those secretive talks to become open. All it does is encourage the people involved in the secretive talks to deny they ever took place. So I think we'll come back to the question of sanctions that you just raised, Ivan, but I wanted to broaden out to a few thematic questions and connecting uh, to something that we said up top that Castro's predecessor, Hernandez, is currently being investigated for charges of being involved with drug trafficking. Can you talk to us a little bit about the role of corruption in politics in the region? How should we understand the ways in which corruption is influencing what we're seeing take place right now? You know, corruption is really been an ever-present in Central America, and we know a lot about it as well. We've had an, a UN international commission uh, to deal with impunity, which operated in Guatemala with the freedom really to sponsor all sorts of criminal investigations against all levels of power, for 12 years. We had a mission, slightly smaller, slightly less powerful mission in Honduras as well. We've had some major investigations. Um, you know, corruption is works at various levels in these countries, but it is an ever-present. It is part of the operating system. It ties political forces 
often which are not very popular, which don't have much of a base in in you know in popular support with economic uh, groups, individuals who support them and then get favors back from from the state. It enables criminal organizations, you know, governing flows of drugs or arms or other illicit goods to get local officials, local police chiefs or mayors on their side. Um, And it's also a form in which, you know, the general population get things done, access to public services, access to health or education. So corruption is there in the, in the everyday life of people as, as a form of, you know, bribes. You know, these are just a few, few examples of what's going on. Uh, and the problem is, of course, that asking one individual or one president or one political leader to stop being corrupt when the system itself is uh, effectively you know, propitiating corruption is extremely difficult. What you would ideally want is a long, rigorous, targeted attack on corruption using the prosecution services and the police over years to eventually deter people from engaging in those acts. And Guatemala, under this commission I mentioned, the CICIC did see that for a period of time. It seemed to be moving in that direction until it started touching the very fibre of power in that country, the political elites and their connection with the business elites, and that it led to the end of that commission and it was thrown out of the country uh, just a few years ago. So it is a struggle. And at the moment, the progress has uh, unfortunately has gone a little bit into reverse. So we've talked about some other things contributing to this flow of Central Americans north. We talked about the government repression, this return towards authoritarianism. We talked about high levels of violence. And and Ivan, you just talked about corruption. But you've also had the pandemic, of course, which has, by all accounts, aggravated inequality, driven many more people into poverty. So Tiziano, you were actually living through the pandemic in Central America. How did the different governments respond? Definitely, the, the Central American region was one of the most affected uh, because, first of all, starting from greater inequalities and in compared to other uh, countries in, in Latin America in general and in the world. And secondly, because of, it had to be managed um, with a very ailing healthcare system, um, which was ill-equipped uh, healthcare system, which was unprepared to deal with such a heavy amount of uh, uh, ill people. On the other hand, as Ivan was also mentioning, the corrupt practices that pervade the uh, political and economic uh, sectors in these countries made the pandemic and the foreign resources, loans and extraordinary resources that is also national level were made available as basically a spot for or a treasury to be used for personal enrichment. So we've, we've seen really uh, scandalous corruption cases uh, in dealing with mobile hospitals in Honduras, for example. And thirdly, the, 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 the overall inability of the state to alleviate the socioeconomic impact that affected millions of people. So you had also uh, programs to uh, provide seed capital to alleviate the economic losses of all those sectors that were being heavily affected, particularly in the informal uh, part of the economy uh, by the shutdowns. Central American countries implemented really stri- strict lockdown, as I can tell you by my uh, personal experience. But on the other hand, this inability to provide relief for those who were suffering from the pandemic economically. And I would just add that on top of the pandemic, 
two category four and five hurricanes hit um, Honduras and Guatemala in particular uh, and Nicaragua on the other hand um, at the end of 2020 affecting more than five million people one way or another um, and making hundreds of thousands lose everything they had uh, their houses included. So let's move to the question of migration. And perhaps first we could start with a focus on relations between the United States and Central American countries. Can you tell us a bit about what the Biden team's approach seems to be to the question of migration? How are they seeking to distinguish themselves from the Trump approach? And what potential promise might this approach hold? I think to understand Biden's policy, we first have to understand Trump's policy. And and one of the main reasons for that is Biden's still using a lot of Trump's policies to control migration, to be honest. What was Trump's uh, you know, strategy? He thought, well, I can't do a lot about changing law within the United States. So if I'm going to stop these migrants coming, I could try and build my wall, which will take a long time, uh, or I can deal with the governments in Central America themselves. And he tried to you know, hatch agreements with the governments of Central America, the Northern Triangle, with Mexico as well, in an effort to effectively bottle up the migrants elsewhere outside the United States. And of course, then when the pandemic came along, he had this great opportunity uh, of, of a health crisis, uh, which would enable him to adopt a measure, Title 42 it's called, in which you can effectively expel most people who come to the country immediately, irrespective of where they come from in Latin America, send them back to Mexico because they came across the border, send them back to their home countries. Title 42 remains on the books and Biden has been using it. Uh, Biden's policies don't fundamentally differ a lot more from Trump's. Why? Because Biden is incredibly aware of the risks to his popularity and the risks to re-election or to the election of another non-Trumpian candidate in a few years' time of the migrant issue. It is explosive and incendiary in the United States. But that reflects the weakness in Trump's policy, which of course is he went to Central America, you know, his officials stomped their fists on the table and said, you've got to do more about this. You're sending people illegally to our country. We can't have this. But these countries and their governments realized, aha, we have something which is of great interest to Washington and we can use this to our advantage. In the Trump years, they used it to their advantage by basically clipping the wings of anti-corruption investigations. And now with Biden, you do get the feeling a little bit that, uh, that you know, the US influence in Central America, the attempt to, to get Central America back on the right path, to sort out its governments, to deal with its socioeconomic problems, comes constantly against this issue, which is Central American governments feel they have a major card in their advantage, that if they wish to, They could turn on and off the migration tap and it would make life very difficult for whoever's in the White House at the moment. And this isn't just theory. This is something you've seen clearly in the case of Nicaragua, that Daniel Ortega has been playing with the idea of exporting more migrants to the US border. Um, And obviously, if Guatemala and Mexico and Honduras at the same time were to say, no, we're not going to play a game, there would be a major problem. So that's why at the same time as adopting a more long-term root cause oriented uh, strategy to 
to dealing with migration, which is, of course, absolutely right. Biden has been very reluctant to remove those sort of more executive border controls out of the fear that the situation will become ungovernable on the border, as we saw to a certain extent, obviously, with those 15,000 Haitians just a few months ago. Ivan, can I push a little bit on on the sort of idea of addressing root causes? I mean, how much, we talked about some of them, I mean, you know, the levels of violence, the corruption, the predation by state officials. To address these root causes, first of all, it's very difficult. But I mean, how much of that is about getting governments to reform? You're getting governments to do stuff that they themselves don't want to do. As you say, they have this card to play, which is that they themselves can allow more migrants to leave. How do the two things, sort of addressing root causes and trying to stem the flow in the short term, how do those two work together? I mean, it's simply not easy because as I think that the problem is, as you said, go to the, the presidential palace of a Central American country and say to the incumbent, well, there are real fundamental fault lines and problems in your society which you need to do something about, and that will involve you losing power Uh, taking power away from your close friends, stopping the flow of money into your political party's coffers, and maybe chucking some family members out of office after you've just given them some privileged positions. It's not going to work in that way. So obviously, there needs to be some structured, long-term, you know, support for Central American countries. The first thing you have to do is capture the wins when they turn in your favour. And this is very interesting when we mentioned the recent Honduran election. Uh, You now have a changed face in in Honduras with a, a relatively progressive agenda, a moment with Honduras having suffered terribly in the pandemic, uh, emerging from a, the, a rule which could be characterised by the National Party as largely corrupt. It's a good moment. There might be things that can be done. There could be collaboration on anti-corruption. Uh, you know, Likewise, ideally, with Bukele, there could have been an attempt to work uh, together on the gang issue because it's criminal violence in El Salvador, which is one of the major push factors uh, for people uh, migrating. So, Richard, there's no easy answer to that, that question. It, you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. You can't simply go in there, swashbuckling away, and change everything overnight. And I will just come back with one sort of historical observation, you know, if if I may. There have been major uh, efforts at reform in Central America. There was a a huge effort in Guatemala in the 1940s uh, and early 1950s to change the system of land ownership to bring a more progressive system to bear, to bring a degree of equality to one of the most unequal countries in the whole of Latin America. And it ended with a coup sponsored by the United States. There were efforts to bring uh, greater equality and urban development in the 1990s. Uh, And unfortunately, it ended up going into reverse when large amount of gang members were deported from the United States back to Central America. And then likewise with the SISIG, It was making huge progress, but then the US took its eye off the ball because it was more interested in migration and controlling migration, and the president threw it out. If it's going to be done, there has to be sustained attention on these countries in which the peaceful and democratic development of these countries is not subordinated to another strategic goal by the White House. But this happens repeatedly. So I'd like to come back to something that we mentioned earlier and a tool which we've talked about a lot on the podcast, um, that of unilateral sanctions, economic sanctions, designations of individuals who are sanctioned, 
and subject to particular measures. How do you see this tool being utilized in Central America? At what are the goals of sanctions? And are they experiencing a backlash from the region? Well, there's definitely a different use of sanctions in Central America than there is in other parts of the world. Um, the U.S. has never gone to reach the point of using, uh, for example, embargoes or uh, widespread sectorial sanctions, acknowledging that the economic impact it might have to in Central America would definitely serve the opposite goal of affecting hundreds of thousands of people's lives and therefore foster migration uh, northward. The, the sanctions are being used in a more targeted way through visa bans, through asset freeze and this kind of, of sanctions. But you have this dichotomy that you, you have uh, a more targeted sanctions in therefore um, more limited impact. These targeting sanctions um, have more to do with the pride and, and the reputation of politicians that actually the way in which they can access resources. We're seeing that particularly clear um, in, in Nicaragua when they have fine-tuned ways to elude, to bypass these sanctions by replacing the officials that are being appointed or to uh, nationalize or, or create other enterprises for those entities uh, who are being sanctioned as well. And that's also something that is being secondly used as a way to nurture this sort of uh, anti-foreign interference, uh, anti-imperialist uh, rhetoric that is actually at the backbone of this um, pushback by uh, Central American governments against the US. And that's part of the reason why you have these very tense relations between Washington and, and the Central American capitals. Ivan, picking up on what Tatiana just said, I mean, this it is sort of this, leaving aside the migration question, but it's this sort of question about how, how do you respond to someone like Ortega? And you can almost write the script, right? I mean, a left-leaning leader sort of goes off in the wrong direction, cracks down on the opposition. The US sort of tends to come in hard, imposes sanctions, ostracizes the leader, that leader then, you know, sort of looks to Russia and China. You've got the region usually, which is trying to keep lines of communication open, usually, uh, and they're sort of doing this with Ortega. But what is the sort of most productive approach for the US and, and indeed for European powers who are, who are part of the policy as well? Is it to try to keep dialogue open or is it to try to squeeze with sanctions, isolation, ostracizing Ortega as much as you can? I don't think it's... It's possible to proceed against Ortega, again, given what he's done in the last year, given the fact that he's locked up all these high-level opponents in, in, you know, in, in pretty appalling conditions. I think you have to apply pressure. Uh, there's a, a, an ocean's difference between sanctioning supposedly corrupt officials in a democratic system and sanctioning uh, allies of Ortega in what is fast becoming a very authoritarian uh, regime, but always knowing, uh, and this is the important thing, always knowing that it's not necessarily going to generate the effects. There isn't this sort of, you know, instant psychological chain reaction from sanctions to, well, I'm going to relent and I'm going to change my mind and I'm going to do what I have to do to please the United States and others. You know, as Tiziano has explained, Ortega has very clear reasons. I won't say good reasons. They're good reasons for him for, for cracking down in the way he's done over the last few years. And those aren't going to change. And in fact, if you apply sanctions to his uh, allies, 
what you will often do, as occurred in Venezuela when lots of people around President Maduro were sanctioned over the last few years, is you push them closer to Ortega because uh, they share the same fate. You know, their sanctions will be removed together or they will uh, they will end in the same uh, battle with the forces that have sanctioned them. And the general economic sanctions are even worse because, of course, you just you know, uh, spark a, a broader humanitarian and economic crisis and you push the government further towards Russia and China. So I think what you've got to do is accept that a degree of pressure is, is required. It has to be targeted, if possible, not necessarily individuals, but at institutions and those involved in institutions which are core to the Ortega uh, you know, governing project, so that might be the, the highest courts, the electoral authorities, the military, you make it very clear that those, all those people are in those public posts will be targeted for sanctions. And at the same time, you make it very clear, if Ortega were willing to embark on a roadmap back towards opening up the political system, there is the prospect of normalizing relations once again. And I think what we come up against again and again in Latin America, and I think elsewhere as, as well, is that those sanctions would be more effective if there was a clearer system as to how they could be lifted and, and more willingness within the United States to lift them upon signs of progress in Nicaragua. So I think at the moment, what you have to say in Nicaragua is, yeah, there will be sanctions there. Nicaragua will probably be expelled from or voluntarily leave the Organization of American States. There will still be those diplomatic channels connecting Ortega with Argentina and Mexico and Bolivia and, and Venezuela and a few others. But while that happens, there has to be a permanent offer to Ortega. You embark on dialogue again. You release all political prisoners and you start to open up political spaces. And then we'll talk and we will start a process of lifting sanctions. And unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be on the horizon right now. Ivan, mean, could I ask you to say a bit more about how this plays in Nicaragua itself? The process you just described, it is an imperialist mindset, right? I mean, to the extent that part of Ortega's appeal is an anti-imperialist one, what is the perception of the sanctions and even the authority of the U.S. to credibly wield them for most Nicaraguans? Well, you're absolutely right. Every time any measure is taken by the United States, Ortega gets up on his platform and he denounces the imperialists and it's the same as ever and it's the 1980s all over again and Managua's under siege. The ideal way to proceed would obviously be through a collective regional action, which indeed is what we were seeing in November. You know, days after those elections in Nicaragua, there was a vote of the Organization of American States uh, for, on a resolution deeming those elections not to be free and fair. One country voted against Nicaragua, uh, which says a lot about how the region feels about this election. You know, even right and left across Latin America, neither side likes seeing the political opposition jailed. Even in Venezuela, you haven't seen that systematic incarceration of all the high-level opponents to Maduro. Some opponents, yes, but that systematic way not. It's, it's, it's a bridge too far. So ideally, it would be the region which would lead the discussion on this. Uh, unfortunately, the region is in disarray, uh, suffering internally. The huge effects of the pandemic doesn't have that you know, bandwidth to deal with it. And the United States does. Uh, and the United States uh, leads it. But it will be far better I think, if Latin America could lead that process. And Latin American governments like the Argentine would have to communicate to Ortega 
look, you, you, we know that you, you want to stay in power and you know that you're worried what would happen you know, if you were to leave power. But this is not the way to proceed. You are just creating problems for yourself or your political heirs in the future. Because at some stage or other, and Tiziana, referring to Tiziana's point, however big a police state you create, there will be an uprising in Nicaragua because it is inscribed in Nicaraguan history. It's happened before, it will happen again. And so it's just a question of trying to avoid that happening by pushing things in the right direction now and avoiding exactly what you're saying now, that imperialist label. Ivan, Tiziana, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks so much to you, Naz and Richard. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much, Richard, Naz. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including on Central America, by checking out our website, crisisgroup.org. Also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producer, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy, and also to Finn Johnson. And thank you, as ever, to all our listeners. So next week, we're not going to have an episode. We'll resume our weekly slot next year, probably the second week of January. We will, however, have a a special episode before the end of the year, and that's going to look at our flagship annual piece that Crisis Group puts out every year with foreign policy, 10 conflicts to watch in 2022. So we'll reflect back a bit on this past year, but mostly look ahead at some of the crises and the trends that we're most worried about in the year ahead. So please do watch out for that. If you have a question or comment, please get in touch. If you like the show, give us a positive rating or review or tell your friends and colleagues about us. Happy holidays for those of you celebrating. And we hope you'll join us for that special episode and into the new year. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.